Welcome into 2 for 1 Drafts. Austin Gale here, the host of 2 for 1 Drafts, a Rookies and Draft Prospects podcast today. An absolutely loaded podcast. Me and Mike Renner talked to ESPN's Todd McShay about his latest rankings and his latest mock draft. We also react to the latest rankings from Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network and Mel Kuyper Jr.'s draft rankings. A lot of reactions, a lot of discussion around the league. How does the rest of the media, rest of the analysts see this upcoming draft? And at the back end of the podcast, interviews with Sam Cosme of Texas and Virginia Tech running back Khalil Herbert. Let's get it. Buddy, we have an absolutely loaded podcast today. Talk to Todd McShay after a little bit of technical difficulties. Going to look at Daniel Jeremiah's rankings, Mel Kuyper's rankings. Should be quite the treat. Quite the treat indeed. Quite the treat indeed. At the back end, too. conversation with Todd. No, it was awesome. Todd McShay was freaking awesome. He had a lot of good things to say. <laughs> yeah, better than the, the drunken conversations in Mobile. But yeah. it was still a really good conversation with him. He had some really good things to say about Caleb Farley, this quarterback class. I'm, I'm interested. You guys should definitely tune in for that. But first, let's look at Daniel Jeremiah's latest top 50. Big friend of the podcast. He's got Trevor Lawrence at one. Kyle Pitts, number two, remember factoring in just like regardless of position, I think a little bit is in this. Looking at the best players in the draft, Kyle Pitts at two. Jamar Chase is the wide receiver one at number three overall, just ahead of Zach Wilson at four. Jalen Waddell, wide receiver two, ranking at five for Daniel Jeremiah. And then Devontae Smith right after at six, right after Jalen Waddell, wide receiver three. Where I want to start the conversation is he has Trey Lance as the seventh best player in this class and ahead of Justin Fields, who comes in at eight, and Mac Jones, who comes in at 32 on his rankings. I know you recently moved Mac Jones up our board mm -hmm. to around 13 in that 13 range. He has comment on Lance over Fields and then also comment on the gap between Lance, Fields, Wilson Lawrence, and Mac Jones. If you're just doing pure talent, and this is kind of what he talked about, Daniel, when he was on the show before the season. It's like... That's how big the gap is in terms of physical talent. It is that big. It's probably bigger. But you're still like it's still a performance-based position to a to a big degree. You still gotta go out and a lot of it 95-ish percent is done between the temples. So I, I am a bit surprised by that, but but he's five, fifth on our board too. And more of the reason him being 13th on our board is because we're factoring in that positional value. Mm -hmm. The fact that quarterback on rookie deal is so valuable that if you just get average performance in the NFL and like you think about any other position say a running back you get an average running back that's that guy's going to be 30 seconds like it's going to be way down on your board yeah if you're just getting an average offensive tackle that's not worth a top 15 pick top 20 pick but the quarterback position how valuable it is that's why we say yeah he's probably 13th on our board is worthy of that type of pick because you can get that average production and that's wholly valuable at that position i really do think ha him having lance over fields and like you said dale jeremiah told us before the season like he was big on trey lance it just speaks to the talent and the ceiling that lance brings to the table like this guy has an insane arm insane athleticism good size and he's not as good as mac jones is a quarterback right now i would say that like mac jones is a better quarterback than trey lance right now but what lance can be or could be in the nfl i think is what puts him ahead of even fields in this situation he has him ahead of fields i wanted to bring this up to you sam monson host of the pff nfl podcast he's been pushing to maybe move Jet mac jones ahead of trey lance on our board what's mm. your take on that my take is that i completely disagree you're 
you have a lottery ticket. I want to hit the Powerball. Yeah. I want it all. I want that guy that can win me a Super Bowl with the roster like the Chiefs got. You don't have to be a complete team, but he can get you there. I think Lance can put you in that sort of area as a prospect. So, yeah, like I said, Justin Fields at eight, at nine. He has his offensive tackle one, and it's been that way for a long time. It's Rashawn Slater of Northwestern coming in at nine. Patrick Sertan is CB1 at 10. Micah Parsons, linebacker Penn State at 11. Then Panay Sewell down three spots from the previous ranking he did at 12. And where I'd like to kind of stop next is Greg Rousseau. Greg Rousseau right now ranked as his 13th best player in the draft. He's fallen down some boards after what was an objectively rough pro day. He's still edge one for Daniel Jeremiah, just ahead of Quidi Pei, who comes in at 14. Do you imagine that Jeremiah drops him a bit after seeing just the overall stiffness, lack of explosion from Rousseau at his pro day? I don't know. When did this come out, actually? This came out March 29th. The pro day was after that. It yeah, was it was after Wednesday. that. It was definitely so it was after, after that. that. I, I don't see how you can not drop him yeah. after that. It, it's one, you had a year away from football. You're projecting that a guy who's a redshirt freshman at that age will improve physically and maybe this is him having improved physically but this is still not good read the numbers here seven five three cone at 266 pounds four four five short shuttle like the agility drills are very poor and then the 30 inch vertical jump the pure explosion numbers all below average even compared to defensive ends we're going to do full list of winners and losers pro day on wednesday on that podcast but man He's, I mean, you have to put him in the losers because then by comparison, it's who he's going up against. The guy next on this list, Quiddy Pay at 14, rocked his pro day. Absolutely. Jason Noe, all-time pro day. His teammate, Jalen Phillips, every single box ticked. Like, slotting him in this class and going back in the tape and like, yes, it's very good for a redshirt freshman, but it's not pound the table, have to get this guy, even despite a lack of physical tools. So that's the biggest thing to me. The only freaky thing about Greg Rousseau is his frame at mm-hmm. this point. I really like Quiddy Pay's edge one. I know that's where you have him right now. And I also think that right after that, if I had to choose number two, it's Jason Owe or Jalen Phillips. Like I really, I don't know if Greg Rousseau is even the number two edge defender for me right now. Yeah. I really like Owe. I really like Phillips. And I know there's, I, I'm going to need a doctor to know if I can even draft Jalen Phillips. I'm going to need to have that conversation about his concussions. But also like Aziz Ojulari is an interesting evaluation in this class because like, he is also explosive in his own right. He had the arm length that was really, and he's already played a lot of good football. You know, he's rushed the passer at a high level yeah. in the SEC. This is such an interesting edge class, man. I don't know. And we talked to Todd McShay, and that interview is coming up later in the show. He says some of the hardest, you know, positions to slot was edge. I mean, hardest players to slot were this edge group. It was that difficult. Did you see that picture of Quiddy Pay also at his pro day? Yes. Looked like a goddamn superhero. <laughs> like he looked like he was wearing a a suit, like the Batman suit. You know, I was like super yeah, pumped yeah, yeah, up yeah. muscles. Like that's what Quiddy Pay looks like. He did 36 bench press reps, like 261 pounds with, with 33 like, inch arms. Yeah, yeah. And then ran a four five two. The guys, like the freakiest drill, he was he tweaked a hammy and couldn't even do. Like he's not pulling out of the three cone because oh, I'm not going to run a good three cone. No, that's the one where he went sub six five last year in the testing. We have the video to prove it. So this guy's just like everything. You want that guy is a monster. Dude, played running back in high school too. Like he yeah. can get so much better in the NFL. And you have such a good base to build off of with yeah. obviously the tools he brings to the table. All right, 15, Elijah Vera Tucker of USC coming at 15 on Daniel Jeremiah's board. Jason. Elijah Vera Tucker, just a side note. He's like everyone 
everyone's just like guy in this class i feel like yeah everyone's just like oh well, you're talking yeah okay yeah he's good like mm-hmm. everyone just kind of universally agrees he's good not in the penny soul Rashawn Slater tier, but everyone's just like, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's great. No one has ever come out. No one is coming out and saying Elijah Vera Tucker no one says is a bad good. thing. Yeah. Everyone's just like, oh, maybe he's not a tackle. Where is he right now on That's your board? His, uh, I think he's like 30, just because like guard center, yeah. not as valuable positions. Where where did his arm length come in? Do you know? It was in the 32s, I want to say. Gotcha. Probably kicking inside then. JC Horn, South Carolina cornerback, up seven spots to 16. He had a freaking sick pro day. JC Horn came in and can threw up a really, really good numbers at his pro day. Corners all helped themselves. And then, except for Caleb Farley, who comes down 12 Ooh. spots, 217. We talked to Todd McShay about Caleb Farley and the back injury. He said, Todd McShay, I'm going to preview the, the, the interview a little bit here. He said, if you had to pick one corner in this class to cover one receiver on one play of any receiver in college football, it'd be Caleb Farley. It's just the back injuries, obviously the opt-out in 2020, just the lack of what we've seen on film. We haven't seen him play a ton of corner is why he's maybe going to come down boards a little bit. But man, talk about a freakish talent. Caleb yes. Farley, man. Caleb Farley. I, like, and that's the only thing is his. It's his uh, the injury. Like, I, are you going to really draft him over guys who are also quality corners and extremely athletic, like Greg Newsom, like J.C. Horn, like Patrick Sertan? Mm-hmm. If this guy's going to have a hampered, be hampered by a back injury, I just, I think Steve brought up a good point that like the teams with the two first rounders, if he falls to the Jets, and falls to the Jaguars, and that's Balky's mo. You know, that was Balky's M.O. Out, out in San Francisco. He was drafting injury risk guys left and right when they had that roster that was, you know, no needs. We can draft injury guys. None of them ever really worked out. Maybe Tank Caradine kind of had some good years. But that that was that, that makes a lot of sense for those teams, in my opinion. Caleb Farley coming in at 17. Going to move down a little bit with valuing time here. But I wanted to jump to where he had J- Jamin Davis, Kentucky linebacker, up 11 spots, up to 24. We having a little bit of a conversation over the weekend or on Friday about just how big is that gap between Jamin Davis and Micah Parsons? Because I mean, from an athlete perspective, this guy's got the length. He's got the explosiveness. You saw it at his pro day. This guy yeah. can turn it on. What is the key difference? Obviously, Micah Parsons has played better linebacker. He's also played it better for a long time. He's a little bit younger. All of those things factor in. But how big is that gap between Parsons and Davis? I still think it's pretty big. The biggest thing being 12 pounds. Like, Jimmy Davis is 234. Micah Parsons is 246. Micah Parsons can go line up, go one-on-one against your OT if he wants. 234, you're not going to. Like It's just a different body type, that difference at that point. And then, obviously similar levels of explosiveness, but the way Mike Parsons takes on blocks already is it's just different. That's why he's different than a linebacker we've seen you know, since we started doing this. And that's him as that's his soft, true sophomore tape that we're basing that off of. So that to me is why. That's the biggest difference. I think it's still a b- pretty big gap, but dude, yeah, Davis is, he calls him a day one player. I, would not surprise me because that's what everyone's looking for. Four four speed at linebacker. Everyone wants it. And length. I mean, the guy's got good size too. Yeah. He's good size, good speed, good athleticism. Moving down a little bit, here's some highlights. Gregory News Greg Newsom. Gregory. Greg Newsom, the Northwestern cornerback up to twenty eight. Azizo Jalari up ten spots to twenty nine. Over Jason Owe, by the way, the mm-hmm. freaky talent out of Penn State. Where I wanted to stop though was Joe Tryon. I haven't told you this. I talked to Joe Tryon, I think on Friday. You know how we've talked about he's like, you know, Levi Wuzrike told me he's a completely different player. He looks completely different. Yeah. Apparently, he like recommitted to the kitchen and his diet has completely changed. And he is like the most excited thing he's looking forward to in the NFL is seeing what he does with this new frame. Like he has mm-hmm. a completely new frame than what he had at Washington. I'm interested to see like because he's, he's saying. So no Eli Apple concerns here. No Eli Apple concerns. Which were he couldn't even make himself a meal. <laughs> Eli Apple can't even cook. 
Joe well, Tryon's say, bit. Joe Tryon might his concern might be he loves cooking too much. No, so it's not cook. He has a personal chef. Oh, okay. Shit. He's had a personal chef in the kitchen, but like he's like completely removed junk food. He was saying that like ah. in the year prior, he was eating Jack the Box, Wendy's, all these different things. It's like when you like factor in what you put in your body, it's gonna have some game changing effects. I'm really interested to see what he's going to look like and what he's yeah. going to play like. Cause it's it, it's he's talking about it like he's a completely different player. Like he has a completely different frame, all this different stuff. I am excited to see Joe Tryon in the NFL. We can also get Eli Apple on the podcast and ask him about it because he's here in, in Cincinnati now. Yeah. yeah. So it's Eli call. open invite and uh Annie Apple yeah. too. Surviving. She's got her own podcast all for it, man. Coming in at 36, down 10 spots. I mentioned in your take here, Christian Darasaw, Virginia Tech offensive tackle. I think he ranks 17th or in that range on PFF's board. What's the what's the shade yeah, why going people, at Darisaw? People are sour on Darasaw. No, he's awesome. I, I don't get it. Someone's gonna explain that to me. Why is he falling on people saying he's falling? He did not test his pro day. Did he have an injury? Is that why? Didn't touch sure. his pro day though, but six five three twenty two. Like he's another one of those big boy tackles. You don't you don't necessarily have to be the most fleet of foot when you have that size and the power he plays with. I, I I'm still unswayed on Christian Darrisaw. Another name to bring up, and a guy that moved up significantly on Daniel Jeremiah's board and the PFF board was Elijah Moore, Ole Miss wide receiver, up 12 spots to 38 on Daniel Jeremiah's board. I think he cracked was, the top 30 on your board, didn't he? I was going to say, some of these guys sneaking in, these are PFF's guys here. So he sneaks in now onto his board. He's got Elijah Moore going up 12 spots. He's got Asante Samuel Jr. going from unranked into 39th overall. He's got uh, Quinn Miners going from unranked to 44th overall. He's the Wisconsin Whitewater interior off lineman. And then Elijah Molden also making an appearance You're on right. the top 50 also. Those are all some PFF faves. DJ coming around. Love to see it. You love to see it. The other thing he's got too is he had Tutu Atwell in his previous ranking at 36. He's out of the top 50. And I'm not Tutu Atwell peace. I'm not surprised, man. It's crazy. We didn't talk to Todd McShay about this. We didn't have enough time. But like Todd McShay still has him up there in like the top 40, I believe. Tutu Atwell up there yeah, right ahead of or right ahead of, if not. Ahead of Rashad Bateman. Yeah, right ahead of Rashad Bateman. If you have Tutu Atwell ahead of Rashad Bateman, I need to know what's going on. I'm interested. I'm interested. Is it the weight? I see so many people on Twitter, so many analysts talking about Rashad Bateman's weight. How concerned are you? We haven't talked about this a ton. Rashad Bateman coming in at 190. You would like to see him start putting it back on because obviously listed at 210, not just this pat like the last two years he's been listed at 210. Also listed at six foot two. I'm not sure if that's changing. And he was almost six one, is what he checked in at, like six foot and five ace. That's what that's what I tell people how tall I am. Um so we're the same size about I'm about one eighty five. So you're looking at Rashad Bateman right here, is what this is the body type you're Stand dealing up. with. This is Rashad Bateman for you. This is what Peak wide receiver, wide receiver four looks like. He'd never wear that outfit, but sure. Okay, thanks. Um, but <laughs> we can't be, you can't be outfit. I know, I can't, you can't be, be outfit policing anymore <laughs> after your history. But oh man, yeah, it's disappointing. But I, I think his game is not completely dependent on that size. Not if you were at one point two ten, which he had to be somewhat close to be listed at that. Usually, you can get back there. Hopefully, with more training after COVID. He said in the interview though, like he played one ninety eight. Like that was his okay. weight. That's when he had his best season. He played at one ninety eight. That's where he wants to work back up to. That's what he wants to play at that's in the NFL. That's and like I think Stephon that's where Dix. you want to be. Some other comments here. You moved down the list kind of quickly. I wanted to highlight a few more before we jump to Mel Kiper Jr.'s latest rankings here. But um, Ronnie Perkins down five spots to forty three. We also saw Tom. McShay have him high, I think in the mm -hmm. top 40. Where are you at with Ronnie Perkins? He's I think in the he 40s was too for us. He was a riser at some points and then now has kind of settled into that 40 to 50 range. His pro day was not great. Um I wouldn't call it a faller of a pro day, but I think he ran the four sevens. Um for an undersized guy, you want to see 
undersized numbers. Like you want to see him be legitimately athletic for even, you know, put up numbers that look like a wide receiver. And he runs a four seven one, nine seven broad jump, a bad shuttle, actually, four six nine shuttle. 25 bench reps, good length though, almost 33 inch arms. You can still win. You can still 100% win at those numbers, especially with the way he plays. But in this edge class, you just like there's a lot of guys testing a lot better than he did. What I'm finding interesting is also he has Kadarius Tony as his wide receiver four, ranked 23rd on his board. And then a little bit further down, he has, um, sorry, scrolling a little bit here, Terrace Marshall Jr. as his wide receiver five at 37, Elijah Moore at 38. And we don't see Rashad Bateman until wide receiver six at 48th on his board. Again, we talked a little bit about Rashad Bateman already, but are you valuing Elijah Moore, Terrace Marshall, Kadarius Tony ahead of Bateman right now? No, I don't think so. There's Bateman's got that solid all-around profile that you want at the position. Like, I, I don't really have questions about how he can win from the outside. Now, if you watch this past year, but that is the problem. A lot of it's based off of 2019 tape. This past year's tape, you can justify that to me being low on him based off of what he put on tape this year because he's not doing the same stuff. It's from the slot. Like, he's not – if you watch this tape, you can be unenthusiastic about what he put out there. But I do think – Tested out well athletically. Obviously, the production is there. There's no real negatives. It was the, the biggest negative right now is that he didn't come in. He didn't weigh in at what we thought, but he also didn't weigh in in a bad way at all. Last comment. Comment. Comments on Daniel comment. Jeremiah's rankings before we jump to Mel Kuyper Jr. on some of the fallouts here. Davian Nixon of Iowa, a guy that you've been relatively fading compared to the consensus for a while. He's out of the top 50. And then Aaron Robinson, a guy that was like, Daniel Jeremiah, I think, put in a first-round mock draft a couple, yeah. a couple a couple months ago, maybe. And now he's out of the top 50 as well. I just couldn't get on board. I think Tutu Atwell and Aaron Robinson were two guys where it's like size concerns, specifically arm length for Robinson. It's like, I don't know if I'm valuing both those guys as first-round players. And we see Jeremiah kind of jumping on that trend as well. Yes. Again, TJ's listening to the pod. TJ's listening to the pod. Bucky said he listens to the pod. Yeah. Loves the pod. Love to see that. When right. are we going to get DJ back on, though, by the way? He's got to come back on soon. Well, I'll work it. Da Producer David Sofaro is going to be all over it. We're going to get him on. I'm talking to JT O'Sullivan, maybe Nate Tice. QB Whisperer. I was, so Thursday was opening day. I had a few beers. A few? Just a couple. And then Friday. Dude, I ran into you at 6 o'clock. You were dark nope. side of the moon. Friday, I sat on the couch and watched all of JT Sullivan's QB breakdowns. It was actually really nice. Nice, man. We're going to get him on the pod. I highly recommend. All right, let's go ahead and jump now to the Mel Kiper Jr. rankings. First thing I got to bring up is that I don't think there's a ton of value in looking at the big board itself because it's not oh. factoring in the positional value. There's some interesting things there. Like, we're going to spend too much time he doesn't reacting. doesn't have the cool tiers like or Todd. Yeah, you know, Todd McShay's got the sick tiers. Yeah. Man. But I'm going to look at his positional rankings. Going to first start at the quarterback position, get your reactions to this. Trevor Wait, Lawrence won. Can I have my take on his positional rankings again that I have every time I look at him? Yes, please. The position groupings that he has stink out loud. <laughs> he has these players all grouped together in one of his positional rankings. Jeremiah Wusukoromoa, Zaven Collins, and then Joe Tryon are all ranked as outside linebackers. Jeremiah Wuskaramoa played slot in our name. Saving Collins played middle linebacker. And that's where he'll play most likely in the NFL. And then Joe Tryon played on the edge. And Quincy Roche is in that too. And Patrick Johnson. And wait, Jason Owe's in that one too. They just, those are a mess, dude. <laughs> it's a mess. I said and, there's and, not a ton of value in the big board, but here the position. And, and then one more insane. take. 
He brings kickers and punters together as if like I kind of respect that. Next kicker or punter on our board. It's like, oh, I need a specialist. Let's go to my kicker and punter rankings. We have to get a better a kicker, but if there's a better punter on the board, we'll take him. <laughs> exactly. We have a needed kicker, but if the punter is there, we'll take him. All right, quarterbacks, let's get to the legitimate yes. conversation here. Stop making okay. jokes about Mo Cobber Jr. Just, he's been doing this since about him. I was going to say, he's probably done it, these rankings since 1979, and that's why. Yeah. But your mom's prime. Uh, yeah, she would have been 22. Dude, absolute dime. All right, let's look at quarterbacks here. Trevor Lawrence won. Justin Fields, too. As the narrative continues to push Fields down boards, Kuiper says nay. Justin Fields, number two quarterback, right ahead of Zach Wilson at three, Mac Jones at four, and then Trey Lance at five. We've had that conversation on the pod at the top here about Mac Jones and people seeing him maybe as a better prospect than Trey Lance. I know Sam Monson is of that opinion. I think even Eric Eager might be of that opinion. We see it here. But first, Justin Fields ahead of Zach Wilson and then comment on Mac Jones ahead of Trey Lance again. Yeah, the, the Fields-Wilson's the real conversation for me. Fair. That one's tight. And that one's meaningful. Like That is your second overall pick. Um if you're the New York Jets or whoever they may trade to, that one's going to be impactful. And, and they both have their reasons why, how you can see them not succeeding at the next level. So you, you watch the tape and you're like, Wilson's kind of, he's got a little antsiness to his game. He can, he can be late in his own right too. Massive pockets to work with. Fields, obviously, Todd McShay kind of hit the nail on his head with his analysis. He's like, there is slow processing. He used to see a guy open, throw the guy open. Some of that's Ohio State's offense. Some of that's just like field. Some quarterbacks like that. Yep. Yeah. Some quarterbacks do that. That's uh, Ian Book's fucking like that. And he's that's why he's not going to. So we're not high on him because he doesn't. You have love Ian Book in stuff. season. Don't start with me. That's not okay. You know that's not true. <laughs> no, for a fact, that's not true. I lament every Saturday that Jimmy Clausen ain't walking through that door anymore. Unfortunate. But, or Brady Quinn. Or Brady. Yeah. Obviously, but. That one, I, like I can, I can go both ways on the field. Zach Wilson, don't make any jokes about that, but I can go either way. Fair enough. All right, let's jump to running backs here. I think an interesting conversation to have. He has Najee Harris one, Travis Etienne at two of Clemson, Javante Williams three, a PFF guy, and then Trey Sermon of Ohio State at four, and then Michael Carter at five. A lot of people, including Jim Nagy, Jim Nagy responded to your rankings today oh, saying, yeah. where is Trey Sermon? Why David don't you have Trey Sermon ahead of guys like, I guess I think everyone's kind of confident in the top three, Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, Javante Williams, even though some may be mixed here. I think the consensus is those three guys are the top three running backs in this class. Where it gets interesting is four, five, six, and beyond. You have Michael Carter, I believe, at four. And then at yeah. five, you have Khalil Herbert, who's actually on today's podcast, by the way, who has webbed feet, by the way. His left foot has six toes. Three are webbed, three aren't. Factor that in your rankings, Mel. And he played with Puka Williams, who had no toes. Yeah, lawnmower accident or something. They, just, they had the weirdest running back feet of all time. Mm. Rex uh, Ryan's wet dream. <laughs> that was too far. That was too but, far. Trey Sermon, go. Sermon had a really good physical profile as pro day. He, he is, certainly qualifies as a winner. Four, five, seven is not great. You knew he wasn't a speedster, though. What was great, 37-inch vertical, 10-foot-5 broad jump, and a 6-8-3-3 cone, all for 215-pounder. That's just kind of that all-around encompassing athletic profile that translates to breaking tackles at the next level. It was his calling card at Ohio State. It was his calling card at Oklahoma. He was difficult to bring down. His contact balance was among the best among the position in college football. And so to have those explosive drills and that change direction ability – yeah, I like Trey Sermon. Uh, I'm a fan of his. I, I just don't think he's exceptionally gifted. Michael Carter is, he had elite change of direction drills at 5'8", 1 or 200 some pounds. Like that, that guy's going to translate in that regard. He's going to be impossible to to 
pinned down in space at the next level. Khalil Herbert ran a four five at another guy who I, I prefer that five foot eight, five foot nine range for running backs. That that is makes you more difficult to tackle, makes you more difficult to find. Like there's a lot of reasons why it's just the low center of gravity is big. And oh, by the way, he had some pretty darn good testing numbers in his own right. At 5'9", 210 pounds, runs a 4'4", 22 bench press reps. His vertical and broad weren't as good as Sermon's, 33-inch vertical, 9'7", broad, but then he ran sub 7'3", cone his own right. So he's, he's a pretty damn good player. They're close. And Herbert, too, from a production standpoint, a ton of long runs, a ton of big hitting home runs for Khalil Herbert on his tape, despite maybe not being a 4'3", 4'2", type of burner. All right, wide receivers here. Devontae Smith at one, Jamar Chase at two, and Jalen Waddle at three. I don't think there's a ton of conversation around who the best three three best receivers are. It's just what order do you have them? What I'm finding interesting is that the consensus is still starting on to be, Devontae though. Still in on him. No, still in on Devontae. So is Sam Monson. No, I think <laughs> Sam is on Jamar Chase now. But regardless, we've talked about a lot about Monson on the pod. I think that what I'm starting to see, you saw it from Daniel Jeremiah. You're seeing it here from Mel Kuyper. Tom McShay, I think, as well, sees Kadarius Tony, the Florida wide receiver. As the wide receiver four, that's starting to become a consensus among some of the analysts as well. I've kind of faded him a little bit of late, valuing guys like Rashad Bateman over him, Terrace Marshall Jr. over him. Am I wrong to be doing that? It sounds like Kadarius Tony might be the fourth best receiver in this class, according to a lot. I will say, in terms of like size, he's six foot 193. He's got more traditional outside wide receiver size than Elijah Moore, Rashad, or not Rashad Bateman, uh, Rondell Moore. Than the guys who are calling the other slot receivers, even Fair. though that's where Kadarius Tony, like size wise, there's not really much that should be limiting him from playing on the outside. I think that's a good comment, actually, because I think a lot of people, including myself, and probably wrongfully, if you're looking at like my evaluation of him, wrongfully putting him as a slot only guy, just because that's where he played. And I think yeah. he is that kind of gadgety type. But you look at it from a size perspective, if you're going to come out and say Rashad Bateman can play on the outside, you better be ready to say Kadarius Tony can as well. Is Bateman more polished? Absolutely. But if Tony can get to that level of polish or get at least closer to it, I mean, you're looking at a guy that can play on the inside and the outside. Jumping to tight ends, I don't think there's a lot of fun conversation here. It's Pitts and then everybody else. I guess Fryermuth as the number two tight end, the guy I talked to recently, wasn't able to do his pro day, battling some shoulder stuff, shoulder stuff, but could be doing some numbers down the road here. Looking at offensive tackle, he does not have Rashawn Slater one. It's Panay Sewell, then Rashawn Slater. Derisaw, he's not fading Derisaw. Then Tevin Jenkins at four. And a guy that I think has been coming up a lot, even Todd McShay brings him up, is Liam Eikenberg, a guy he called a plug-and-play starter. What is your opinion of Liam Eikenberg? I know he's not as high on your rankings. So, I think we touched on this in one of the mailbags. Arm length. He's going to be a guard. More likely than not at the next level. 32 and 3 8 inch arms. That's very short. There was one, like I said, one tackle under 33-inch arms starting in the NFL last year. So, the rest is very good. I think he's going to be a competent NFL player, but you're talking about... A guard. More than likely a guard. Speaking of guards, he has Sam Cosme of Texas, a guy that has prototypical offensive tackle traits and length and size at guard, right behind Elijah Vera Tucker. His guard rankings are Vera Tucker at one, Cosme at two, Aaron Banks at three, Aaron Banks of Notre Dame, and then you have Wyatt Davis of Ohio State at four, and Trey Smith at five. And then another thing here, because you didn't see Alex Leatherwood in his tackle rankings, he has Leatherwood at guard as well. Yeah. A guy that when we had him on the podcast, he said... One of the first things he brought up that teams are telling him they love his versatility. Like they think he can play inside a guard right away. And I'm not surprised that maybe Mel Kuyper is hearing some of the same things and saying maybe Leatherwood comes in and plays really, really good guard out of the gate. Man, he just sees these tackles and guards very different from how I see them. Yeah. Like even projecting to the NFL level. Like 
has Eichenberg and Jalen Mayfield, the Michigan tackle, as tackles. I, I think both of those guys end up a guard in the NFL, whereas Cosme would floor me for him to end up at guard. And Leatherwood, Leatherwood, I could see why, but I think he'll stick at tackle for some wins. The desperation at tackle is too much. Mm-hmm. Teams need tackles. There's not no one. There's not a lot of offensive lines that have two good tackles and suck. You know? Yeah. Like think about it. There's not. It's not a lot. If you have two quality tackles, usually you have a fairly solid offensive line. Absolutely. All right. Going to skip past center rankings here. Not a lot to comment on. Landon Dickerson of Alabama at one. Creed Humphrey of Oklahoma at two. Looking at edge defender here, this is going to be tough because the way he splits these up is interesting because <laughs> defensive ends and outside linebackers, it's like, okay. So he has his defensive end rankings, Cody Pay, then Jalen Phillips, then Gregory Russo, then Ronnie Perkins, then Carlos Basham Jr. Let's stop there. Let's just stop there. I love that. I love that Ronnie Perkins is 253 pounds. He's like 10 to 15 pounds lighter than Joe Tryon, who is listed with outside linebackers. So you go to outside linebackers as Jeremiah Wusukormoa is his number one, Zayvon Collins of Tulsa at number two, Aziz Ojulari at three. So I don't know where he compares Aziz Ojulari to a Jalen Phillips or Gregor Rousseau. And then he also has, looking more at outside linebackers, he has Jason Owe at four, Chris Rumpf at five. I think we saw Todd McShay, too, have Chris Rumpf at what? Inside his top 50, top 60? Yeah, 60-something, 66. What's your take on that? Chris Rumpf's a PFF guy, man. That guy wins in PFF system. So Rumpf, interestingly enough, might have touched on this right, 244 pounds as pro day, but didn't work out. And that was the biggest thing, is he looked less explosive this year because he was 225 pounds his best year in 2019 when he was kind of that sub-package, joker, defensive, whatever, played all up and down the line for Duke. He was 225 pounds insanely talented but just can he get to an nfl weight to rush the passer i don't know talk to a kinesiology degree who who does who does frame analysis what if whoever does for frame analysis for i have no idea see how big guys can get i need to talk to that guy about chris rumpf to know what you can expect him to feasibly get to mm-hmm. weight wise and then obviously maintain that athleticism doesn't test as pro day probably because it wasn't going to be great but I'm a huge fan of his. Just been burned on a lot of undersized defensive ends. It's just not a position that translates well when you don't have any sort of power aspect. Well, he's not a defensive end. He's an outside linebacker. My bad. Okay, yeah. Milton Williams is a defensive end who played all exclusively defensive tackle this year at Louisiana Tech and weighs 284 pounds, but that's a defensive end. Milton Williams is an insane... I was looking at some combine stuff and pro day stuff, and among players that weighed in at over 280 pounds, Milton Williams pro date is absolutely absurd like legendary it was insane what he did uh, at over 280 pounds looking at defensive tackles here we're going to see some normalcy christian barmore tackle defensive tackle one as pff has stated since the jump levi muzurike at number two uh davian nixon of iowa at three then we have the two usc guys jay tufele and marlon tweet below two at four and five then we start to see some of the big dogs marvin wilson at six bobby brown at seven aline mcneil at eight tommy togiai of ohio state at nine and tyler shelvin of lsu at 10 the more i look at these rankings the top 10 guys it's deep because you're going to ask all these guys to do different things. Like you're going to ask, like when you're bringing in a Shelvin or a Togiai or a Bobby Brown, like you're going to ask these guys to do different things. The only thing I kind of hate about it is how low he is on Lee McNeil. Yeah. The the D tackle class is kind of cheeks and, and you're seeing these all over the map because of it. Like there's after Barmore, which Barmore is like one or two for everybody. After Barmore, there's no real consensus on two, three, four, five or anywhere yeah. in terms of even grouping. I mean, you see, you, you have to think that 
the defensive tackle class is deep at okay players. <laughs> like you see, like yeah. I mean, like you you can get an Ali McNeil. It feels get... like last year's tight end class, where it's like I'd love to take one in the fourth. Yeah, after Barmore, obviously being one, yeah. maybe the only top thirty, top forty player. Um, going to inside linebackers here. I will say though, Tommy Togia, we'll touch on him in the the pro day podcast that we're going to do on Wednesday. But man. He had, a, he had a pretty sick pro day. His bench was what, 40, 40, reps? 40 reps on the bench, and then a 7 2 3 cone at 296, which is an elite figure at that size. Man. All right. Tommy Togia, also a friend of the pod here. Inside linebackers Micah Parsons of Penn State at one, Jamin Davis of Kentucky at two, Nick Bolton at three, where I find this Bolton one interesting. Hive. Bolton Hive, Chas Rat at four, right ahead of Jabril Cox, your guy, Jabril Cox. And then after that, this linebacker class kind of does drop off. McGrone, Cameron McGrone of Michigan at six. Baron Browning, the freaky athlete from Ohio State that you want to go down to either uh, or outside linebacker. It's hard to say. I, to oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't Maybe know. Maybe kicker punter. He also, he's probably one of the few guys that's highest on Dylan Moses, having him ahead of guys like Monty Rice of Georgia. But uh, your opinion on Surratt over Jabril Cox and then having uh, maybe Moses that high? Well, yeah, Surratt's completely different level of instincts than Jabril Cox plays plays a more physical brand of linebacker than Jabril Cox but still a worse tackler like I I don't know I don't know if I trust that those tackle issues are still completely gone like that and, he, and the thing about him he is old despite you know being new to the position is in his 23 it's already 23 so there you have it there you have it. All right. Cornerbacks and safeties. We're not going to go over his long snapper rankings. Not this podcast. Maybe dedicate a whole podcast yeah, to it, but not today. Uh, cornerbacks. He has Caleb Farley as CB1. I think this might have come out before. Yeah. The back. Yeah. The, before the back injury, but still the back surgery, that is. Uh, Caleb Farley is CB1. Todd McShay had a lot of good things to say about Caleb Farley. Make sure you turn in, tune in to that interview. Caleb Farley at one. Patrick Sertan of Alabama at two. J.C. Horn at three. And then Greg Newsom of Northwestern at four. I will say, you're starting to see a consensus on who the four best guys are. It's yeah. Farley, Sertan, Horn, and Newsom as those four best guys. Probably those four guys that could go or should go in the first round of the 2021 NFL draft. After the big four... Who do you feel like the best cornerback prospects are? Who are your favorite cornerback prospects after the big four? I was going to say, you buried the lead here. Mel Kuyper is the only guy I've seen put Tay Gowan. Oh my goodness, I didn't see that. Has yeah, he has Tay Gowan at 10. He also has He's Sean Wade listed at corner, which, I mean, these positionals, yeah. I don't know what to do with these. And he has Elijah Molden who played slot at corner, which yeah, I guess that is, but... He's going to be a safety in the NFL world. Let me read the rest of his rankings so. then. I apologize for that. Tyson Campbell of Georgia at five. No Eric Stokes. In yeah. the top 10. Tyson Campbell of Georgia at five. Elijah Molden, the slot corner from Washington at tie for five. five. Oh, wow. He did a little tie for action. Love to see that. Then you have Kelvin Joseph at seven, the Kentucky corner, uh, former LSU corner that transferred. Asante Samuel Jr. of Florida State at eight. Sean Wade, Ohio State at nine. A guy he really loved before this season. Yeah. So I do think that that's a, a product of that. And then Tate Gowan, our guy, PFF's guy, UCF coming in 10. at number 10. The fifth best one, though, in this class is tough. And that's why I think those guys, those top four, will go pretty high. Because I think after that, I really like Asante Samuel Jr., but he's not going to be for everybody. Yeah. You know, the size thresholds will get, we'll, we'll cut him off some team's board. So then those guys just go further down the draft. But I, I do really think Asante Samuel, obviously Elijah Molden, we call him a safety. But those two guys I feel the best at about being good, just they're not your traditional corner. If you want like a traditional outside cornerback, I still think it's take out. 
Fair enough, man. Take Allen. He also had a good pro day. It wasn't like elite, but he had a good pro day. I think ran in the low four fours. Low four fours. Love to see that. All right, safety here, and then we'll finish. Um, and we'll jump to the Todd McShay interview, the interview with Sam Cosme, and the interview with Khalil Herbert to finish the podcast. Safeties, number one, no surprise, Trayvon Morick of TCU, best free safety prospect in this class. After that, Richie Grant of UCF, Javon Holland of Oregon, a guy that MGD, MJD said is the best defensive player in this class. I love the Maurice jones Ducat time. Maurice Jones When's 2.0 coming out, MJD? I we need, need mock draft 2.0. I need it. I need it. So Javon Holland at three. Then he has Andre Sisco of Syracuse at four. Damar Hamlin at five. The pit Last guy. year his 2.0 came out at the end of March. What's he doing? Sleep at the wheel. Dude, sleeping at the wheel. Too busy gassing up Javon. My yeah. guy, though. My guy. I'm, I'm with MJD. Um, after that, it's kind of... Who's I mean, not not a ton of big names in the safety class after Demar Hamlin yeah. at five. Do you, you like see Cisco though? Do you do you like Hamlin at five? Where, where are you at on Hamlin? I like Hamlin. Hamlin and Gillespie are in the early one hundreds on the PFF board, which is gotcha. around safety six and seven, I think. Is this safety class? What's your opinion on the safety class overall? I don't love it, but I do think there are. Oh wow! I just realized he doesn't have Jamar Johnson even ranked in his top ten. Uh, the Indiana guy. So that one's surprising to me. I think. He's safety two on PFF's board, but you were late to his tape though. Maybe Mel is too. Very, very possible that I would not uh, be surprised. He's big dude's barely played. Yeah, I mean he had 400 snaps this past year was the most he played in a single season. So the, I, I do think though you have a few all around guys and then a few role guys and then it's kind of cooked. I just don't love the depth of the safety class. Fair enough. All right, that's gonna do it for Mel Kiper Jr.'s rankings. A lot of fun stuff. That it's so hard to discern the outside linebacker defensive end stuff on his rankings, let alone putting kickers and punters together, like you said at the top here. All right, what a podcast. Let's go ahead and jump now to the meat of the podcast. Interview with ESPN's Todd McShay, interview with Sam Cosme of Texas, and then an interview with Khalil Herbert of Virginia Tech. Now joining the 2-4 Drafts podcast is ESPN's Todd McShay, also an analyst on the First Draft podcast. Definitely recommend everyone to go check that out. Not just this draft podcast exists. Okay, First Draft, Mel Kiper Jr., Todd McShay, get it done. Todd, great to have you on the show. Good to be with you. What's going on? Dude, living the dream out here in Cincinnati. Weather actually isn't terrible. You know, there's like eight days a year in Queen City where the weather isn't too bad. So we're living it up here in Cincinnati. Go ahead. My family's from Cincinnati. They they live in uh, Mason. Oh, nice, right. man. You got to make your way out here. Get in studio. Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll, uh, we'll avoid the technical difficulties if you're sitting right next to us, that's for sure. <laughs> it would be a lot easier, right? It would be a lot <laughs> easier. Um, where, where I'd love to start, man, I think where a lot of the discourse has been around the draft, I mentioned your take as well, is just who your top five quarterbacks in this class are right now. I know you dropped a, an article where you tiered your draft rankings for ESPN.com today, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the top five quarterbacks in this class. Yeah, I mean – it's obviously the, the biggest story of this year's draft. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, I have at number one. And there's areas that he can improve, and I get it. But I, I've talked a lot to Urban Meyer prior to the, you know, leading up to the draft and, and was with him in um, in Clemson for the for Trevor's pro day. And what he loves most about Trevor is, is his twitchiness and how, you know, you don't get many six-foot-six quarterbacks that can get the ball out as quickly or have the, the footwork that he has and with so many you know, screens and quick quick game that that um that urban wants to to run with that offensive system it's important to be able to kind of be that shortstop that just turns two um after that i think zach wilson is the next best quarterback and it's again it's it's difficult because you're you're looking at byu and it wasn't 
Zach Wilson's fault. It wasn't BYU's fault. It was just the circumstances. They, they couldn't play the level of competition uh, that, that they expected or wanted to play this past year. And so he, he was feeding off of kind of poor defenses for the most part, but he's so gifted in his ability to extend the play and, and feel the rush. And if it's coming from the outside, climb the pocket. And if it's come, coming from the inside, slide away from it and then take off running if he needs to. Um, after that, I think it's kind of, I would say, a second tier, in my opinion. I think it's Trevor and Zach, and then after that, Trey Lance from North Dakota State. His accuracy is not where I want it to be at this point, but he has everything else. He processes quickly. He's built like a you know, a, a tight end or a defensive end. Uh, he's strong. He's competitive. He's, he loves the game. Every, every feedback that I've gotten from North Dakota State has been outstanding about just his passion for the game. And then Justin Fields from Ohio State. Um, I think he's more accurate than Trey Lance, but I don't think he processes as quickly. And I think that he, you know, just watching all the tape, he loves to see his receiver come open versus anticipating throws. So that's the area that he has to improve upon. But, I mean, he ran, what, a 4-4-4, 40-yard dash. People were talking about his work ethic. I think that's ridiculous. I mean, just look at him. He's a, he's a vegan. He's in unbelievable shape. He didn't have to play this past year and could have been the number two overall pick potentially, but came back and played. Um, and I, you know, from, from a work ethic standpoint, I have no issues with Justin Fields. It's just him being able to process a little bit quicker. Um, and then finally, Mac Jones, I would have a number five. He's the only guy that doesn't have mobility in, in terms of the top five quarterbacks that we're talking about in the first round, but he, he processes as fast or faster than any of these quarterbacks. I talked to Steve Sarkeesian uh, prior to the Missouri game. I think it was the first game of the year for Alabama. We had that game live. And he said, you know, we just need Mac to stay in his lane. We, we don't need him to be a, a superstar or, or be a hero for us. We've got three offensive linemen that are going to be drafted, uh, two wide receivers that are going to be first-round draft picks, and Devontae Smith and, um, and Jalen Waddle, and a running back who could be a first-round pick, and, and Najee Harris. He's like, so – and then the third – the second game that we had – the like, guy ah, was starting to give him more. He's starting to really pick things up. And in the third game we had late in the season, he said, I've never installed more with the quarterback in, at the college level than I have with Mac Jones. And he's like, he's in complete control of this offense and he, everything kind of runs through him. So I think that that tells you why a team like San Francisco moving from 12 to three could potentially take him over more athletic, uh, more physically talented quarterbacks. You've been doing this a lot longer than us here, Todd. How special is this quarterback class in terms of the ones you've seen in the past? And could we realistically see quarterbacks go one, two, three, four for the first time in NFL history? You call me old man? (laughs) (laughs) Call you experienced. It's a good thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Yeah, it would be the first time that we would see four in a row. And it wouldn't shock me given the situation. I mean, clearly – Trevor Lawrence is going one. Zach Wilson, I'll be shocked if he's not the number two overall pick. I, I think more so today than ever before that it's going to be the Jets just staying there and taking him. But if, if they if they decide to go with Sam Darnold, then they're going to wind up um, they're going to wind up moving that pick, and a team will, like a Carolina would move up from eight to two or whoever else. But uh, but I, I think one two is pretty much locked in. And San Francisco obviously moved up from 12 to three to go get a quarterback. So one, two, three, I 
I feel as certain as I've ever felt going into a draft that those are all three going to be quarterbacks. Then it gets interesting. You know, does Carolina move up? Does Atlanta take the quarterback or do they take I, – I, in my let, uh, latest mock draft, I had him taking Kyle Pitts because I think he's the – I think he's the best player that's not a quarterback in this draft, the Florida tight end. And if you have Matt Ryan for the next couple of years, and he's been durable, and he hasn't played poorly, I, I, I don't know. If, if, if you want to make a run and improve, then I think you, you go with a weapon, put him next to, you know, with Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley. It makes a lot of sense to me. But it also makes sense to me that you, you're sitting at four saying, we're not going to be drafting this high you know, in the future years, let's take advantage of being here and a quarterback class that's deep and has five first rounders. And let's get our guy, whether it's Trey Lance or Justin Fields or Mac Jones at that spot, we'll have to see, but uh, they could go either way. So it, it will not surprise me at all if we see the top four. And then I'm most curious about Carolina. Just talking to their coaching staff, they're, they are so, they believe that they have a team in place that can be a playoff team. They just need a quarterback that can win that, you know, in the fourth quarter, have that drive. They lost eight games last year by one score, and they're obsessed with it. So, uh, to me, that, that's going to be the most inter- interesting spot. But they can't trade up with Atlanta because Atlanta's not going to trade within the, the division. So, five is probably the most likely spot that they could move up to. Maybe it's six, but I don't know that. I don't know that Cincinnati wants to move on to that spot and, and move away from potentially getting one of the top receivers or Panay Sewell, the offensive tackle from Oregon. And I don't know that, that – um, is it Detroit at six, right? I don't know that they want to move out and potentially not get – whether it's Jamar Chase from LSU or one of the Alabama wide receivers at six. So it'll be interesting to see if they can strike a deal between now and the draft to move up to go get their quarterback. But I know for a fact that they really – are you know desiring one of these top five quarterbacks i want to focus in on that cincinnati Bengals pick at number five i think there's been a lot of conversation around what is the best decision for joe burrow's development is it investing yeah. in the offensive line is it getting panay sewell to have him come play with jonah williams the former first round pick out of alabama or do you target a big name pass catcher like jamar chase putting him back with joe burrow in cincinnati or even kyle pitts if he's available what do you do if you're the cincinnati Bengals gm if jamar chase and kyle pitts and Panay Sewell on the board at number five. Who do you feel like is the best player for Cincinnati and specifically Joe Burrow's development? No, this is a tough one. I would look at it, and this is what I frequently do, is as a, com- a combination pick, meaning what can, knowing what I can get at, at five, what's available, and then what is going to be available in the second round. Mm-hmm. So, listen, I, I love Panay Sewell, 330 pounds and, and long and physical and He's a great finisher, and I think that that would be a really good pick. And if, if you know, if you're in Joe Joe Burrow's house, his mom and dad and two brothers that play college football, and his dad's a coach, I mean, they, they would be thrilled to see their son protected better, right? Mm-hmm. But how do you pass on Kyle Pitts if, he, if he's available? And if Pitts goes four, as I had him going four, how do you pass on Jamar Chase, who set SEC? records in receiving yards and, and touchdowns, receiving touchdowns in 2019 when he was with Burrow. So that that to me would be the difficult part. Now, there are really good receivers that you can get in the second round. There's no question about it. Terrace Marshall from LSU could possibly be available. He might go late first. Elijah Moore is a great slot receiver with exceptional speed from Ole Miss. 
Tutu Atwell is the same kind of guy from uh, Louisville. Um, I mean, there, there are so many receivers. So Rondell Moore is another one from uh, Purdue. So there are so many guys that are, we're talking about, you know, 4-3, four, 4-4 four, four speed that you could wind up getting early in the second round. Offensive tackle, there's a lot of depth too, though. I mean, that, we talked about Panay Sewell and we talked about um, uh, uh, Rashawn Slater from Northwestern. But after that, you still have other really good guys like Tevin Jenkins from Oklahoma State. Uh, Liam Eikenberg from no- Notre Dame is, is going to be a plug-and-play starter. Uh, Jalen Mayfield has a lot of talent. He's not fully developed yet coming out of Michigan, but he's 6'5", 320 pounds and, and can move. Um, and, and even down the line, like Samuel Cosme, who ran, like, I think, in the four eights, it is it is uh, pro day in Texas and has a lot of athletic ability. So there are other guys that you can get in the second round is my point. But I, I personally, it would, in my opinion, it would be, if I was making the decision, it would be Pitts, then Ch- uh, Jamar Chase, and then Panay Sewell in terms of the pecking order for Cincinnati at five. What so do you, you have the tiers. Up on what do we think? Yeah, I'm I'm all in on you know I think they if Kyle Pitts is there I'm I'm in agreement with you I I I think the positional scarcity at tight end there's only three game changing tight ends in the NFL and right now Kyle Pitts in my opinion could come in and be a top five top four tight end in the NFL out of the gate and that opinion and where it gets interesting is Jamar Chase versus Panay Sewell because obviously there's a ton of receiver talent in this class but how 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 many receivers come off the board of the big three Jamar Chase Devontae Smith Jalen Waddle before we get the slot types guys like. Elijah Moore, yeah. guys like Kadarius Tony, guys that are going to play in the slot at the next level. I do think I'm leaning Kyle Pitts or Jamar Chase over Panay Sewell, knowing that I can get a Sam Cosme or a Walker Little or maybe a Tevin Jenkins, Christian Derrissaw later in the draft. I go Kyle Pitts because yep. you can find a wide receiver. You can't find a Kyle Pitts. Yeah. Kyle Pitts don't exist. So. You can't find a Kyle Pitts is probably the best way to put it. Mike, I know you had a question. So we talked, uh, we were talking about your tiers here up on ESPN.com. You have six tiers, 107 players. And I love the way you did it because I do think tiers are far more indicative than a pure draft ranking numbering these guys. Who was the hardest one, the hardest prospect out of any of these to put into your tiers? That's a good question. Um, I would say, well, first of all, it, this year has been so difficult because so many of these guys that we're talking about in the first round are opted out or injured, like in the case of Jalen Waddle after four games. Um, but I would say the the edge defenders I've struggled with, you know, Quiddy Pay, I love his suddenness and I love his motor, but I don't necessarily think he was utilized properly all the time. I think he can be a better pro than he was at, at Michigan. Um, Greg Rousseau, we didn't see play this last year um, from Miami, but he had 15 and a half sacks the year before. And he's obviously very athletic. And then his teammate who did play this year uh, wound up with, you know, having an explosive year, Jalen Phillips, sorry, um, having an explosive year. And he's more power where Rousseau's more kind of speed and athleticism. So those guys I struggled with a little bit and looking at it, I, the quarterbacks were difficult in terms of where they actually ranked versus where I think they could go. And then getting into the, the off the ball linebackers. I, I really like this group, but I know that they're not going to go extremely high. Like Jamin Davis is an outstanding player. He's long, he's athletic. He worked out well at his pro day. He can cover and he, he, the way he shoots gaps and gets up the field and, and just makes play 
plays behind the line of scrimmage is so much fun to watch. Um, and uh, Micah Parsons, I think, is the best off-the-ball linebacker in this class and should be a top 7, 10 pick in a normal year. But he could fall a little bit because we have five quarterbacks and four pass catchers, including um, including Kyle Pitts at the tight end position, that are very likely to go in the top 10, 11 picks. So that was difficult. And then the last one for me that was, that was kind of a struggle and, and continues to be is Caleb Farley. You know, you have Patrick Sertan, who I think is probably the most complete corner, but he, he's given up some big plays, and he's he's not the, the the most fluid guy when you compare him to Farley. J.C. Horn from South Carolina is probably the best press man corner in this class and is so physical and so competitive. I just – I love the way he's wired. Uh, but but with, um, with Farley, I think if, if you told me – you had to cover one number one receiver in the league for one play. I would I would send Farley out there because I think he's the most smooth and athletic of the group. His, his he has an unbelievable knack, whether it's reading the receiver's route or his eyes in trail of being like knowing when to turn his head and go attack the football like a wide receiver, like a wide receiver, and that's that's what he does best. And I, I'm so impressed watching his tape with his ability to adjust, but. He also has the back injury now, and so I think he could fall a little bit because teams are, you know, concerned about the durability and and how long it's going to take for for him to recover. So that that was another guy who I think is right up there with Sertan and um, Sertan and Horn, but I dropped him a little bit simply because of the durability aspect. I'm interested. I mean. Mike has been big on Caleb Farley since 2019. I think the back injury and, you know, obviously opting out of the 2020 season, you just haven't seen him play the position a ton. Right. It's probably the biggest reason maybe teams do him lower. But I agree with you, man. If there's one play, I'm taking Caleb Farley against any receiver in college football. I wanted to pivot the conversation a little bit to running back value and drafting running backs in the first round. You and Mel Kuyper Jr. have been talking about this for a long time. That's not another age comment, Todd. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, but I'm interested because you have, you know, you have Travis Etienne and Najee Harris going in the first round of your latest mock for ESPN.com. I'm interested to know what your opinion of running back value and drafting these guys in the first round. Is it a case-by-case situation? Is ETN and Najee Harris different? Or do you feel that teams are shying away from this moving forward and you're going to start to see teams avoid drafting even the best running backs in each class in the first round? Yeah, I mean, it's history tells you that you don't have to draft a running back in the first round to get a start. But there, there have been plenty of guys that are taken in the first round that have been stars. Uh, you know, Derek Henry's, uh, you know, comes to mind. And Najee, Harris, Najee Harris from Alabama is probably the, if not the best, then the second best running back that, that uh, Nick Saban has had during his tenure there. So, I, listen, I, I don't have any absolute rules to it, but it would I would really struggle to take a running back in the first round if there were other players available that with similar grades. Um, they have – in my opinion, this, this is what I've always said, and I believe this. They have to be an exception to the rule type of running back in terms of talent. And I think what you know what Najee did this past year is he went from a 235-pound back that liked to dance a lot and what wasn't physical and aggressive to a guy who was a pounder. And it, it, like his mentality changed. And Steve Sarkeesian, the offensive coordinator, former offensive coordinator at uh, Alabama, got him involved more in the passing game. I think he, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was pretty close to the receptions he had this year 
almost mirrored what he had from the previous three years. I mean, his production increased phenomenally. So uh, Najee, to me, is the most complete back. Travis Etienne has a little more, more explosiveness, and he got stronger. That was the difference, too. Travis, you know, Najee, I talked about, became more physical his final year. And, and ETN came back as well, both seniors, which is rare to see at the running back position. But ETN comes back, and he became stronger in the lower body. That's what he wanted to improve upon from being a second, third-round pick to being a potentially a late first-round pick. And I, that's what I think he did, and he caught the ball well as well. So both of those guys, in my opinion, if you're drafting late in the first round, whether it's Pittsburgh, uh, the Jets, Buffalo, those types of teams, I, I think – they, they kind of belong in that area. I'm not talking top 20. I'm talking you know, 24 and beyond. And then I think the most underrated player at the running back position this year is Javante Williams from North Carolina. I mean, this guy, is, he's 5'10", 220, and he seeks out contact. I, his tape, I, I'm sure you guys have studied him. I, I love watching his tape. He is never going down on first contact. His contact balance is outstanding. And he, like, if he has an opportunity to step out of bounds or just kind of like go down, he, he's looking for a safety or a linebacker to take out with him. And he does it every single time. And I, I just, I love the way he plays. And beyond that too, I, his teammate, Michael Carter from North Carolina is a good kind of a third down back, a scat back, if you will. And Ramondre Stevenson, I think could be the, I don't want to say sleeper, but the, the overlooked guy from Oklahoma, you could probably get in the third, fourth round, who I think is going to be a really good pro. Todd, always appreciate the time, man. It was a real honor to have you on the show. Really appreciate it. Make sure you check out Todd's work on First Draft, the podcast First Draft with Mel Kuyper Jr. and Phil Yates. Todd, thanks again. We'll have to get you on maybe after the draft again. We'd love to do it. Appreciate you guys. You guys do really good work. Now joining the Two Foreign Drafts podcast is former Texas offensive tackle Sam Cosme. Sam, great to have you on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're out there enjoying the Southern California weather. Can you please tell me the degrees, how recently you were at the beach, how good the food was? I need an update. I'm a Cali guy. I, I need to live through you for a little bit. No, it's been it's been great. Uh, well, it's like 60, 60 through 70 degrees, uh, no humidity. I like Texas. It's been great. Went to the beach last weekend. Uh, nice vibes. Went in the cold ocean, but that felt like a cold tub for us, so I got some recovery in, which was You'd love great. to see that. That's yeah. awesome, man. Do you surf or anything? No, I I body surf. That's what I do. I just throw <laughs> my body in the wave, and uh, I'll do that. Dude, I'll tell you what, man. Enjoy the Mexican food while you can down there. If you get drafted by you, – you're from Houston. Houston has really good Mexican food. Texas has good Tex-Mex. but Yeah, really good Tex-Mex. You, you get drafted by the Bengals, the Browns, anywhere in the Midwest, dude. You're not going to get any good Mexican food. I'll tell you that right now. It's not going to happen. So definitely enjoy it while you can out there. That's cool, man. Um, yeah. Want to now kind of pivot to – Talking about your pro day, obviously some insane, insane numbers that I think a lot of people expected, you know, former five-star, you know, athlete with a ton of athleticism. You see that athleticism on tape, but talk to me about all the training that went into that day and then kind of the reaction you got from obviously your reps, your agency, and also, you know, the teams that saw you working at your pro day. Yeah, I think I I was hoping for those numbers. I kind of tested around. I didn't really know what I was going to get in the 40. Um I just wanted to get something in the four eights, and I did, and I was super stoked about that. Bench was a big surprise, and then I think everything else was pretty much. 
uh, I was super like excited for everything and, and having that opportunity to go and showcase my athletic ability amongst the scouts was, uh, something special for me. And, uh, no, I was, I was fired up for, uh, my numbers. Yeah, you should be, man. Those are freaking insane. Like that is, those are rare human being numbers, let alone offensive tackle or whatever it may be, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what was some of the feedback you got from teams while you're down there or even talking to teams so far? I'm sure you've had more than just this zoom call to talk to teams and other people like that. Yeah, I mean, the the feedback has been good. I mean, I've been trying to build these relationships with teams. It's pretty much all I can really do other than, like, pick apart my brain. Uh, that's what teams are trying to do. Um, no, it's been it's been good. Um, it's just, you know, building those relationships with teams and, and coaches, and uh, that's all I've been doing. So other than that, I've been getting really good feedback from the teams and um you know like i said this whole process you, it's kind of still in the unknowns and you don't really know all you can do is just try your best and uh see what the outcome is absolutely so when you say you know teams want to pick your brains peel back the curtain a little bit and, and tell us you know what exactly they're looking for when they're trying to pick your brain and talk football yeah so basically when you you know they'll, they'll put some plays up or do such and 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 you know go through plays and then you have to recall like what they said and what the calls are and such. So there's just like uh, senior memorization when it comes to uh, plays and calls and formations and such like that. So um, it's just that aspect of it, you know, and then, you know, they'll watch our film and we'll go through my film and I have to explain, you know, concepts and such. And so um, now it's been that's the mental aspect of it so far. Gotcha, man. Well, I want to go back to your game a little bit and talk specifically about how, you know, where PFF sees your key strengths in this class, you know, putting our scouting hats on and evaluating talent. We see obviously athleticism being one of those big things, but another thing that I don't think maybe a ton of people have brought up with you, but we feel a big strength of yours is experience. I mean, you have had a ton of reps in traditional pass sets and traditional pass protection um, type of assignments. And I think, and performed really well on that. You're one of the best pass protecting offensive tackles in this class, according to PFF's grades and metrics. In addition to having obviously this elite ceiling moon level athleticism, do you think those two things are kind of what separates you in this offensive tackle class? Or you go ahead and put the scouting hat on and, and tell me what you think your biggest strength is or your biggest separator in this class is. I think those are very strong strengths with me um definitely hitting hit it right on the nail i think one other thing is just like my consistency with with like not having injuries as well i the day i started um i never missed a snap in my you know three years of playing and so that was a big factor for me and just you know the experience aspect of it just constantly you know being there you know playing through minor injuries or such like that um i think that's another strength of mine uh, for sure, you know, the pass blocking ability has been great for me. And then, um, you know, all, 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 all those things you just said, I think you just hit it right on the nail. And that injury stuff is massive, too. And that's not just all luck. You know, obviously, there is such a thing as bad injury luck. But to stay as healthy as you were and, and on the field as much as you were, I'm sure a lot had to go into that. Talk to me about, you know, the things you do off the field, in practice, in the weight room. Sleep schedule, I'm sure, is even a part of it to kind of just stay healthy, yeah. to make sure that you're always on the field. Yeah, I think the biggest uh, thing was like mobility for me. Uh, being an offensive lineman, you're constantly in the trenches, so you're constantly getting rolled up. So if your ankles, your knees are very flexible and able to uh, bend, you know, like if a guy rolls up on you, uh, it helps with you know not having uh, injuries or minor injuries. If that's the case, it could have been worse or such like that. So being in there, doing those extra um, 
aux lifts and mobility lifts and such like that, I think really helped me um, when it came to uh, that aspect of not getting injured. What do you feel like your biggest area of improvement is, or maybe from feedback you've got from teams, where do you want to get better the most or most improve, I guess is a better way of phrasing that, going into the NFL? Yeah, I think uh, going to the NFL, just, you know, the speed of the game is going to be a lot uh, college and just, just being quicker, more explosive. Um, and, and those are the kind of things I've been looking for, just that quickness. Um, I think, you know, once I get my technique or whatever co whatever team I go to and whatever, the, how they want to, coach my technique and and such but uh no i think it's just the speed and 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 quickness of the game and me being explosive is is something that i'm, I'm going to be working on what's your opinion of you know positional versatility along the offensive line and that importance obviously being able to be able to being able to kick inside play both tackle spots even play center how, how often are you asked about that or asked about playing different positions obviously you have the prototypical tackle frame not a lot of people are going to ask you to kick inside but i'd be interested to know you know what your opinion of having that positional versatility having that that five tool skill set to play all those positions is I think it's huge. I think uh, having the ability to put your best five guys on the field and, and figuring out that as a coach and having a guy that's more uh, like a Swiss Army knife is, is huge for him. Um, you know, it gives you more more space to, you know, work with and and having that ability is, is, is massive for especially playing on both sides. Uh, and I feel like I have that ability, too, because I feel just as comfortable as on the right side and on the left. Um, so I think that's a huge part. Of that so um no i think that's a great benefit and, and at the end of the day like i said put the best five guys on the field to win you a championship so you're going back to your time at texas i'd be interested to know more about your film study in the week leading into a game you know what you all what you look for on film and what all goes into your preparation for a specific opponent a specific defense or even a specific pass rusher you know i've talked to offensive tackles that will chart every single move a guy does before they go against him or look at his pre-snap stance versus what he does on the other side of the ball. All that type of stuff I think is really cool to, to hear about in terms of what you're looking for on film from a preparation perspective. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, it goes back to on like Mondays, we're putting together a KYP, know your personnel. Um, you're dissecting the guys. Um, you're just starting off with the personnel. So first off, I'll find their primary move with what move they like on. Um, you know, pass protection, uh, secondary moves, if that's a move they find like once or twice a game, um, you know, you get limited third downs or even second downs or whenever, whenever you're passing the ball, mm -hmm. but third downs especially. And then the counter moves, uh, let's say they their first move didn't work out and they go into a counter move. What's their counter move? Do they like to spin? Do they like to, you know, work back inside? What do they go back to bull? Um, and then, uh, you know, those are some things with the pass protection aspect of it, but dissecting that aspect. And then, you know, when it comes to, you know, watching the run, are they aggressive runner? Are they a gap, uh, integrity type of runner? Are they a freelance type of run, run, uh, a defender? What, what aspect are they? So I'm just dissecting that. And normally, you know, with being a college student as well, you know, you have limited time when it comes to doing classes, doing uh, football and such. So I'd, I'd try to watch most like most of the time, like three to four games of their recent games and see what, hey, and then I'd ask my coach, hey, what schemes do uh, do our, or do these guys go against that are similar to ours, like opponents they've gone against? So I'll watch those games um, just to watch scheme-wise. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I kind of dissect uh, versus – each guy going down the line.
Yeah, and how has that film preparation kind of changed in the offseason? You know, what are you looking for now on film? Have you had an opportunity to maybe turn on film on yourself, critique yourself yeah. in your own game, or, or are you watching even NFL guys, watching other I'm, offensive tackles I'm, I'm in the watching, NFL? You know, I'm watching myself and what, you know, looking at my technique and things that I've been with talking with Joe Staley and just things that I've been working on and, um, uh, and seeing that I have to improve for the next level. And then, uh, you know, when I'm watching other teams – in uh in the nfl first of all i i dissect guys i i watch their i watch the set so what type of set the tackle took or what's the type of set the guard took mm-hmm. um, and then you know i i look at hey versus this set he does this move and then i'll put right next to it like categories like and then and then a, a note section saying hey this is what he did wrong this is how he could have fixed it you know yeah that's awesome yeah. And do you, are you doing that work in Excel notes app? Where, where, where's that work going? I have, I have that on my notebook. So I have that actually at home, uh, in my apartment. And so, yeah, when I, when I jot that down, I have, I've been watching on Exos and, uh, been able to still get film and, and, and dissect that. So. Very cool, man. That's awesome. Are there any NFL offensive tackles, you know, maybe it's Staley or whoever that you kind of cater your game after that you watch and say, man, like those are the sets I want to take in the NFL. Uh, you know, I think when it comes to see, I love watching Joe, but I love watching David Bakhtiari. He's a uh, he's a he's a guy that you know I can relate with. He just size af- aspect and, and the way we look. And um, David, he's just so consistent with his his base and how he's able to anchor down when he gets into contact and how explosive and quick he is. And uh, he has a unique stance that I don't think I can mimic, but. Uh, no, I, I watch him a lot. And going back to your time at Texas, who were some of the edge defenders you went up against in your career that you feel like were the best guys that you went up against? Shoot. Um, a lot. You had, you had, you had, man, you faced a lot of top competition there in the big 12. You know, the thing is like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guys I can give credit to. Um, um, you know, I think, well, when I played LSU, uh, Caleb on chase song was a good opponent. Um, um, I'm blanking on some names. I just remember numbers. Mm-hmm. And uh guy from uh, Kansas State was a really good guy. White uh, Hubert, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Hubert was really good. Um, um, I think Jaquan Bailey, Jaquan Bailey, if I'm not from Iowa State. Okay. If that, I'm not mistaken. Um, when I played sophomore year, I was unreal. Like, when I was went about 270, uh, poor Augustin was really good at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, just I, I, there's so many guys. I'm just going down the line trying to think. Uh, but no, I've been I've been going against a lot of good opponents. Battle tested, man. Absolutely yeah. battle tested. Um, to finish here, and I kind of ask every prospect this. I'm always interested in this. Is kind of what your motivation or your why is to to play football and continue to kind of make the sacrifice you do, not only to play at the collegiate level and then obviously pursue a career in football in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing about it is just, like, my love for the game. Like, I couldn't see myself doing anything else right now besides football. Like, I'm, I'm putting my all my eggs in one basket. Like, I see myself as 
Like, I couldn't imagine have, not having football. Like, I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know the sound, but I don't know if I could function without football. <laughs> no, uh, I think uh, that's fair, man. I mean, that, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not surprised by that. I did have one more for you. I forgot. Uh, I mean, so, so I talked to a lot of wide receivers and corners, and I feel like trash talk comes easy for those guys because you're seeing so many, you know, you're seeing the same player over and over. But off the tackle versus the pass rush is kind of similar. Do you ever get in, in the mental game of it? Do you ever talk a lot of trash on the football field? No, I, I, I won't start it, but I'll always finish it. Um, <laughs> That's uh, a good answer. Yeah, I, I, I'm not if, – hey, if I'm going against a guy and we're having a good battle and, like, there's a mutual respect there, you mm-hmm. know, but if I have a guy that wanted to talk back and tra- trash talk, then he, he, he's going to get some back. And, <laughs> and then, like I said, I'll finish it. So Perfect, man. Uh, yeah. That's funny. That's a good answer. I appreciate that. Well, I wish you the best of luck moving forward, and thanks again for, thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Now joining the 2-4 Drafts podcast is former Virginia Tech running back Khalil Herbert, actually PFF's fifth-ranked running back in the class, coming off a monster pro day. Khalil, great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Great to be here. You know, I'm excited to join it. Absolutely, man. You are a PFF darling. A lot of, a lot of, you know, you rank highly in, met, you know, a lot of the force missed tackle stuff, yards after contact, explosive runs, and it's all coming off to a really monster, what some, many are calling kind of a breakout year for you at Virginia Tech, but it's a late breakout, not because of necessarily talent level or development, it's just opportunity, you know, splitting carries there at Kansas, make the transfer, I think in the middle of what, the 2019 season to go to Virginia Tech as a graduate transfer, and then light it up in Blacksburg at Virginia Tech. Talk me through that transition from Kansas to Virginia to Virginia Tech and what all went into kind of that blow up year for you uh, with the Hokies. Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a, a wild transition. Uh, just, you know, I ended up redshirting after my 2019 year uh, and graduated and, and went to Virginia Tech that January. But you know, I think the biggest thing would be my relationship with the O-line, um, you know, and the coaching staff believing in me um, and giving me the opportunity uh, to just be on the field and get the ball in my hands, you know, whether it's, it's kick return, catching the ball in the backfield, run the ball, uh, just give me the opportunity um, and believing in me. And then those guys up front, we had a monster O-line, um, and they opened up some gigantic holes for me. So, you know, I can't – I can't. Um, every highlight you see, I'm running down the field, and it's a big shout-out to those guys. So. Let's talk more about that relationship you have with the offensive line, specifically Christian Derrissaw, one of the top 20, top 25 players in this class, a guy that's an absolute behemoth up front for Virginia Tech. What was your relationship with him on and off the field? Yeah, on and off the field, you know, that's a guy that when I first got there, uh, we just kind of interacted, we, we embraced him. Um, you know, it was instant, like, clicking. Um, him, Lucita Smith, Brock Hoffman, those are the kind of guys, like, we go to the cold tub together, hot tub, cold tub, we'd watch film on Monday mornings um, together. We go out to eat together, even when, you know, when I was just back in Blacksburg for Pro Day, uh, we went out to eat. So just that kind of relationship when I first got there, um, you know, kind of lasted and, and built over quarantine when we we're home. Um, and then when we got back to school in the summer, uh, you know, was, we we're rocking and rolling. You know, looking more at your pro day, obviously hit 22 reps on the bench. I think you said that your goal was 21. So you love clearing that number. Also a 4-4-6, 40-yard dash, which is, you know, 77th percentile among running backs. But for a running back at 210, I do think has added weight there. How do you feel like you did? I feel like I did great. Um, you know, in January, I set a bunch of goals that I wanted to hit at my pro day. Um, and I hit them all right on the head. So I was I was really excited. I was real pumped. Um, and, you know, I feel like I did a great job and helped myself. So. I also want to bring up the Juice nickname. I mean, I heard you're in line here for some Juice Box stuff, you know, some sponsorships here and there. You got a lot coming. You got a lot coming your way with the Juice nickname. Where did that originally start, and what is the what is the reasoning behind it? Uh, yeah, so I started in high school. Just uh, the way I am on the field with my teammates in the locker room, 
uh, at practice every day. I'm bringing the juice and I'm, I'm getting people going, getting people excited. So that started in high school and it stuck with me ever since. And, you know, it's, it's been, it's been growing ever since. And, and you went to American heritage. Were you there the same time that Sertan and Tyson Campbell were there? So yeah, they were on my team. My, Man, my, they were sophomores when I was a senior. <laughs> so I've talked to Patrick Sertan and had the conversation about like, did they even throw the ball on you guys? Because you had two <laughs> former five stars who run in the four threes, whatever it was. I need your perspective. What was that team like playing for that team? All the success that you had there at American Heritage. Yeah. Um, it was crazy. You know, it was full of four or five stars at practice. So <laughs> the competition level was real high. Um, you know, practices, everybody's going at it. Uh, but it definitely made me a better player. But just being around uh, such high group of talent and, um, you know, a bunch of guys that know how to play the game of football, I think, pushed me um, just to be the best I can, especially in high school. So a lot of the strengths that kind of PFF sees in your games, at least from, you know, looking at our draft guide here is, you know, low center of gravity. People see five foot nine at running backs and think it's a weakness. Absolutely not. The NFL has changed, man. Clyde Edwards Hilaire is like five foot eight being a first round pick. People don't look at height as a weakness. Five foot nine, two ten is great size for the NFL running back position. That low center of gravity, you know, really allows for you to break tackles, force, you know, um, gain yards after contact and all these different things. But also you have sneaky home run hitting ability. You know, four four six isn't necessarily four three four two speed, but still find your way it can time and time again into big plays average over seven and a half yards per carry this past year that's what we feel like your biggest strengths are that home run hitting yeah. ability low center of gravity but you put the scouting hat on you tell me what you feel like separates you in this class yeah definitely that home run hitting ability uh being able to you know take those runs the big plays and take them the distance is something that you know you, i feel like you've got to do because you just don't know how drives are going to end um and i think my vision my vision is one of the biggest things you know i'm able to see things that not a lot of people can see but you know, I was surprised that people are saying like that my height is is a is a concern. I didn't I'm with know, you. you know, right? Every running back I know of, uh, even from back in the day, is usually like five eight, five nine. Uh, you know, Tiki Barber, Ladainian Thompson, they're probably like five nine, five ten. But those guys had no problem with their height, and it's helped them, you know, have great careers down the road. Five nine five ten is the sweet spot, man. You get to six foot six foot one, you're almost too tall. You know, you don't want to be in that. You don't want to be getting you know cut down like that. That's for sure. Uh -huh. um, I'm also interested. You know, when we when I talk to running backs on this podcast specifically, I like to bring up like how much the position has changed over the past five ten years. You know, the expectations yeah. for a running back in the NFL is so much more skewed towards the passing game, pass protection, catching the ball out of the backfield, running routes from the slot, running routes outside. Like you're asking running backs to do so much more than be this 350 carry back that runs from under center all day long. How have you kind of adjusted your game with how the NFL is adjusting to what running backs actually do in the league? Yeah, just being able to do everything. Um, when I get the ball in my hands, inside, outside, um, you know, get those short yardage gains, get those long runs outside or around the perimeter. Uh, just being able to catch the ball out the backfield um, and get mismatches on linebackers, um, you know, in the kicking game, returning kicks. But just being able to do everything um, and create mismatches and make yourself more valuable. Um, to stay on the field really is what I've, what I've been looking at, especially uh, these last couple of years. You know, you see guys like Chris McCaffrey coming out, uh, just being able to do everything. Are, are there some running backs in the NFL that you kind of pattern your game after? I know in the draft guide, PFF sees a comp to Jay Ajayi, who had a lot of success at Boise State and early in his NFL career. But who are some names that you feel like you have similar skill sets to or kind of pattern your game after? Uh, I'm an old school, so... Tiki Barber, Daniel Thompson, those are guys I grew up watching. But Tiki Barber is someone that I feel like similar-wise, if you watch the film, we kind of resemble each other. Um, but those are guys I definitely watched growing up, kind of the reason I wear 21. Um, you know, they're able to do everything, and that's what I want to be able to do.
That's awesome, man. I know we talked a little bit before we started recording about how good you are on the mic because I've watched a handful of your interviews. I've had C.T. Barber on this podcast. That dude is fantastic on the mic as well. He's also very good in media. So maybe the similarities ring more even off the field. That's awesome to hear. Um, I want to go back to you brought up vision. And I do think vision comes with a lot of preparation in you know the practice weeks or the practices prior to each game. I'd love to know what you're doing in practice, specifically from a film perspective, to prepare for a certain opponent. What are you looking for on film from opposing defenses or opposing defense? Defensive players to kind of pick up on or identify before you head into a specific game. Uh, a big thing that I look at is is safeties, um, how they tackle, how they come downhill, uh, what kind of things they do to break down and, and tackle running backs. Because I'm expecting to get to the second level. Uh, you know, it's my job once I get to the second level to make that guy miss. Uh, so just seeing how they tackle, what kind of tackles they are, if they're going to dive at my legs, if they're going to try and hit me up high. Um, you know, just seeing that kind of thing. So I'm able to make the miss and, and make that big play. And how has kind of your film preparation changed in the offseason? Have you had a lot of opportunity to kind of go back and watch more film on yourself or even watch film on guys in the NFL? Yeah, yeah. Just especially with these coaches and these meetings, I'm able to, you know, see myself every day on film. But really just evaluating myself um, and looking at things like I wish I would have did better um, and things I can improve on and things I wanted to improve on. So especially from the end of the season to the senior bowl, um, you know, I want to work on pass pro and, and catching routes, catching routes out the backfield um, and show people that I could do that. And I feel like I was able to do that. So now, you know, I'm just taking it to the next level and just trying to figure out different ways I could get better. A bit of a fun question here. This is becoming it's growing in popularity to ask you this, but you're born with 12 fingers. I think 12 fingers. You had those <laughs> removed early on, but you still yeah. have six toes on one feet, foot or both feet yeah. and they're webbed. Let me know what, what, what exactly is going on here with the limbs. Yeah. So I had I had six fingers on both hands. I had extra pinkies. Um, I don't know if you can see them right here. Wow. And then on my left foot, I have like three regular toes and then three web toes. Um, but there's there's six nails down there, so uh, <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> I don't know how it happened, but that's how I was the only one born with that stuff in my family. But so so I have a couple comments there. Do the web feet? Web toes help you at all cutting. I, I, I've heard swimming. Web, people with web toes can swim better. But two, are you aware that also, you know, you, you obviously played at Kansas before transferring to Virginia Tech. Puka Williams has, like, his yeah. he got his toes cut off or something. Like, were you guys yeah. both just, like, deformed feet in the locker room? I don't know how Kansas was recruiting these guys. Yeah, so, you know, it was both of us in there with uh, some type of some, something going on with our toes. Uh, but, you know, I think that just helped us bond even more, uh, just being able to have, share that kind of experience just, uh, just something weird that we both have interesting yep. about it. You'd love to see it, man. I might have to add it to a strength here on, on your profile. <laughs> it's got an extra toe. That's going to take you a long way. Um, we can finish yeah. with this one, man. This has been great. I really appreciate you setting aside the time. I like to ask, you know, prospects, you know, what their why is or what their motivation yeah. is to, you know, make the sacrifices that you do to play college football, to pursue an NFL career, to do everything on and off the field, to be an NFL running back, one of the most, you know, brutal, violent positions there is. Talk to me about, you know, what your motivation is or what your why is to play the game. Yeah, my why I'd say just being amongst the best. Uh, I want to win a Super Bowl. Um, I always wanted to win a national championship, win a bowl game when I was in college, and I wasn't able to do it. So being able to do that at this level, I feel like is my biggest reason. Um, and then just you know playing playing the game. I love the game. It's fun to play. Um, going out there making big plays and and scoring touchdowns is what I love to do. So being able to do those two things, uh, you know, is the reason I, I I love playing the game of football and why I do it. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate the time, and I wish you the best of luck moving forward, Cleo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
That's going to do it for this episode of Two Foreign Drafts. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast. Helps us out a ton. Until next time, Austin Gale, producer David Zofaro, producer Mike Quinn, Mike Renner, Two Foreign Drafts. We'll be right back.